Hey, this is Sam Cedar. You're listening to the best of Ring of Fire Radio. Welcome to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. Today on the show, Pam Vogel from Media Matters will join us to report on the manipulative ads Sinclair Broadcasting is forcing local anchors to read, now airing across the country. Trita Parsi will join us to discuss two major upcoming nuclear moves involving the Iran deal and North Korea. Ari Berman from Mother Jones will explain why Donald Trump is planning to rig the census. Heather Digby Parton from Salon will be here to break down this week's biggest news stories. And lastly, Mike Conza will join us to talk about his piece where he asked the question, why are there no good conservative critiques of Trump's unified government? Don't forget, you can go to ROFpodcast.com and sign up for the free one-hour version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. And if you want the full show without commercials, become a member. That's the best way to support this show. That's ROFpodcast.com. Here to help me analyze the biggest news stories of the week, Heather Parton from Salon, or as you may know her, Digby. So, Heather, this week, among other things, we saw Donald Trump basically proving to the country that he has no real idea what DACA means or refers to as he was uh, tweeting away his anger that everybody's trying to jump on board of the DACA bandwagon, seemingly (laughs) unaware that that is literally impossible. But uh, putting that aside for a moment, the other interesting development was he started attacking Amazon. Uh, specifically, uh, there's a, a, a lot of reason to believe that this is very personal for Donald Trump. He doesn't like Jeff Bezos for whatever uh, reason. And it has been it has been a, a very interesting moment where and, you know, I think uh, in the past, maybe we've we've touched briefly on the idea of sort of platforming uh, never Trumpers. This brings up like another side of that coin, too, is. Um, what happens on those few times when Donald Trump um, is maybe right for the wrong reasons or wrong for the right reasons or or whatever it is? Like, where do you go? Because Amazon, there's a lot of issues that people on the left have with Amazon, uh, ranging from their treatment of their workers, ranging from monopolistic behavior, ranging from um, uh, having basically built their business uh, largely on government largesse, uh, the idea that they don't pay any federal income taxes, um, the idea that maybe some money is left on the table at the U.S. post office. What, where do you come down on this, and, and particularly this debate about do you, do you side with Trump if he, like a broken clock, is right twice a day? <laughs> Well, there are two ways to go about that. You know, if you're an intellectual or a person who deals, you know, is an expert in certain issues or an academic, 
Um, I think, you know, you kind of have to go with what you see is the truth in these situations, right? So, you know, if you're a person who writes about um, monopoly and antitrust and you think that Trump, that Amazon is, you know, is, is abusing its, its power in, you know, one way or the other, yeah, I think you have to make the argument on the merits, right? I mean, otherwise you lose your credibility as someone who speaks on those issues. But for people who deal in politics, I think that there's a different, there's a different uh, responsibility here. And certainly for me personally, if I'm looking at that issue, uh, I know what Trump is really trying to do. And he's done, this is the second time he's done it. Because he also backed the um, Department of Justice blocking the AT&T Time Warner merger uh, under the auspices of the antitrust laws, and which I think that most you know, people who are concerned with this issue, uh, mostly on the left, I mean, I've never known a right-winger to care about monopolies before, not really, at least not for 100 years. Um, you know, this is something that, that, you know, we would normally say, rah, rah, you know, good, they're going after antitrust, finally. But it, the intent matters on this. And the only two things, the two big companies that I've heard Donald Trump go after are that AT&T and Time Warner merger and Amazon run by Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post. In other words, his intention has nothing to do with antitrust, and it's a direct attack on the First Amendment. So for me, I don't have any trouble prioritizing that, um, that issue. I think when it comes to civil liberties, that that's kind of non-negotiable and nonpartisan. I mean, I would back... You know, I, I would back George W. back Dick Cheney if he were, you know, in the completely impossible event that he ever stood up for civil liberties. But, you know, these those are pretty fundamental. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that it's always that cross-partisan thing. I, you know, I've been on the same side as Rand Paul, who is, you know, hardly my, you know, my idea of a great politician, but we have been on the same side of certain issues, and I'm not going to go out and, you know, raise money for him or anything, but I will back his play if he's doing something in the Senate that I uh, believe in on the civil liberties issue. You know, there's always strange bedfellows on those issues. You're always kind of cross-current. So for me, that's not really uh, a problem, particularly when Donald Trump has made a fetish of attacking the free press and has now gone out of his way to, uh, you know, lift up a group like Sinclair Broadcasting, which is clearly a propaganda network, and basically is out there doing advertisements on his Twitter feed every day for Fox News. So to me, this is a very, very serious problem. And, uh, you know, as far as Trump's reasoning, you know, I mean, if Amazon's a bad company, great, you know, let all the, all the academics and everybody who cares about Amazon do their thing, but if it means that at the same time, on a political level, that we're enabling Donald Trump to whittle away at the idea of the free press, which I think is really true. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people say, hey, look, what can he do? He can't really do anything about this. This is just him, you know, babbling. Well, you know, no, he's the president of the United States, and he's out there attacking the First Amendment. I mean, that is just not an acceptable thing, and it has to be challenged. And so, uh, you know, for me, this is not a, a difficult issue. It's an issue of civil liberties. It's an issue of prioritizing the fact that his intention is to basically try and change the structure of the way uh, our free press operates and enable propaganda uh, networks 
like Fox in Sinclair to dominate the industry. That's that's not something we can put up with. And you know, I mean, hopefully there will be plenty of pushback from from various quarters. Although you notice the right wing isn't particularly uh, you know, right engaged in this particular First Amendment issue, one way or the well, other. You know, and and we're going to be talking to um, uh, some folks from Media Matters about Sinclair Media later in the program, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting because we are now, after you know, uh, over a year, um, still in this situation where we are uh, looking back, and um, you know, a, a year ago. I remember upon uh, Trump's election, uh, I remembered at that point, you know, wondering, you know, how much should we be fighting against his authoritarianism uh, and how much should we be waging politics? And it is um, we are constantly walking that line. Mm -hmm. You don't want to deify Amazon uh, because someday, theoretically, we're we're going to be in a position where we should be dealing with uh, issues like uh, monopolies and uh, treatment of workers. Uh, and and we got to be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. But you're right. Uh, Donald Trump's agenda here has nothing to do with those. And I don't know. It just uh, it reminds me of of Thomas Friedman saying, ah, I wanted to go to war. I had much better reasons, though. And <laughs> exactly. uh, that didn't work out too well. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more from Heather Parton. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. Cedar here. You're listening to the best of Ring of Fire Radio. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar here with Heather Digby Parton from Salon. So, Heather, uh, here is a uh, in the last segment we were talking about Donald Trump uh, going after Amazon and. Uh, while Amazon has monopolistic practices, while the I think the post office could make some extra money uh, by uh, raising their prices for what uh, they're doing for Amazon, uh, and Amazon's got labor issues, et cetera, et cetera. The bottom line is Donald Trump is not our ally on this. Uh, it's one thing to write a think piece; it's another to uh, to praise Donald Trump for going after uh, Amazon. And I should also add, it's, it's another thing, too, to deify uh, Amazon just because they happen to be a victim of Donald Trump's. Uh, we got to protect uh, Amazon to the extent that uh, we want to protect a free press when it comes to The Washington Post. Same thing with, with Time Warner. You made that point. Uh, but here's a uh, an issue that is completely unambiguous. It is Scott Pruitt. He is the head of the EPA. His expertise uh, prior to being the head of the EPA was attacking the EPA, literally had, I think, over a half a dozen suits against the EPA, trying to prevent them from doing their job. He is not interested in protecting the environment. Um, uh, therefore, his, his being head of the EPA is, is rather anachronistic. But now he's turning back the cafe standards. This is just insane to me. 
It's it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, in fact, when he made the announcement earlier in the week, he was. I mean, this is how how amazing it is. <laughs> he was supposed he was scheduled to get make the announcement at a Chevy dealer in Virginia, and all the Chevy deal and it's you know it was one particular one that was a big you know anti cafe standards you know anti climate climate denier yes. climate denier you know. Um, and it was one guy, and but all the other Chevy dealers in the in the area, they were part of their regional network or whatever, put up a huge fight and said, "No, we don't want him here. We don't want to be associated <laughs> with this announcement or with with the Trump administration's position on this because we're afraid of the consumer backlash, and rightfully so. You know, I mean, and that's Chevy dealers." I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't a bunch of, you know, <laughs> hippies out in San Francisco. I mean, these guys, are they sell cars. And that's how, how shocking this particular announcement is. And that's on top of dozens of other regulations that he's rolling back on the Clean Water Act, on all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and now it turns out even more astonishing is that it turns out that he is completely corrupt from top to bottom, he's involved with all these, with all these, uh, you know, polluting industries. He's taking money. He's living in a condo for practically nothing. Um, that's owned by a, you know, a, a major, you know, a, a person associated with major polluters. I mean, this guy is unbelievable. And that's on top of the fact that he's completely paranoid. You know, he's the guy who had to have the, the cone of silence, and that he's right. riding around on airplanes first class and now they were they were actually looking into getting him his own private plane because he's so paranoid about having to deal with the public he feels his personal safety is endangered spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this personal travel frankly i don't need i don't even understand why he has to travel so much but for whatever reason he does and then it turns out this week it was revealed that he got massive raises for people went around the white house doing it and has been out there talking to every, you know, been pushing himself hard to replace Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. The guy's nuts, but for, but you know, he is. Let's be honest here. He's getting the job done. I mean, he is getting the job done, and it's a big, important one to the right wing, and not necessarily Donald Trump, who I don't think knows anything about the environment or actually even cares, other than he thinks that all regulations should be you know, should be rolled back. But uh, all the others, the donors, the big money boys that backed, and especially in the, in the um, you know, oil and gas and energy sector that backed the Republicans, they are getting their money's worth with this guy. They, he is absolutely delivering for them. And I think what's amazing is, you know, the Congress is saying nothing and everybody's just kind of standing by and watching this bizarre spectacle sort of unfold without feeling like there's nothing to be done because Trump does not seem inclined, despite all the corruption that's been revealed, to let this guy go. Well, you know, I mean, I think, first off, uh, it makes sense for Donald Trump to surround himself with a bunch of corrupt people because it, um, it, 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 it makes his corruption um, far less, I think, uh, stand out in, in the same way. Uh, and, and we do, I, I do remember, um, I mean, he's, he's, uh, He's he's long gone now, but I do remember 
um, a, a certain former advisor getting up in front of CPAC and saying, our agenda is to destroy the administrative state. And right. uh, they are getting that job done at the EPA. You know, it also, though, I have to say this, and, and it surprises me that it has not come up more. It reminds me of the Clean uh, Air or Clean Skies Initiative under the um, the Bush administration. This is when they came in and lowered the federal standards on uh, how much mercury could be put in the air by coal-fired power plants. And they did this and literally forced states to lower their standards as well so that you didn't even have states who were able to maintain uh, their higher standards as to how much pollutants could go in the air. And this uh, CAFE standards we're seeing is is not too dissimilar from that. There's talk at the EPA that they're going to attempt to force California to drop their mileage requirements because, of course, car makers are going to make their cars for California, and they're not going to make a whole nother set of cars for the rest of the country. So many cars in California. Um, but this is how determined they are to roll back any protections for the environment. And it's it's what Scott Pruitt does best. And like you say, they're getting the, do- the job done. Well, we've got a lot more to talk about, Digby. If you will stick with me in the next hour, we have some uh, new developments, as we seemingly always do. But um, they... They get larger and larger in import in the Mueller investigation. We will talk about that in the next hour. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. Heather Parton or Digby will join me, like I say, at the top of the next hour. Coming up, Mike Conzo will answer the question, why are there no good conservative critiques of Trump's unified government? I'm Sam Cedar. We'll be right back on Ring of Fire Radio. You're listening to the best of Ring of Fire Radio. My name is Sam Cedar. We'll be back with a new show next week. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. Conservatives have now had complete control over the government for 14 months. Victories have been few and far between, considering Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have a president who will literally sign everything that crosses his desk. He had to answer why there are no good conservative critiques of Trump's unified government. Mike Consul, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. So, Mike, let's talk about 2009 like you do in your piece, just to sort of set up the premise here. I remember uh, 2009. There was um, the first concerns with the Obama administration, I think, had to do with the bankruptcy bill and the cram down and. Uh, then from there, there was a lot of debate about all sorts of issues that were, were bubbling up. Uh, talk a little bit about that. So we set the set the premise here. Yeah, yeah. I was joking on Twitter that it's kind of boring to relitigate 2016. So let's relitigate 2009 instead, uh, which uh, kicks up a whole other uh, hornet's nest. And, you know, um, we'll talk about conservatives in a little bit. But I remember it was very intense and very argumentative and a lot to deal with at the time. But especially looking back on it, there was a real serious debate about how unified democratic governance was going. 
This is with the Democrats coming into office with some very clear plans on what they wanted to do that were well worked out in advance, like health care reform, uh, immigration, cap and trade, but also stuff that had shown up very recently, like a foreclosure crisis and a really big Great Recession. And, you know, there, the uh, Obama presidency was always pretty happy to take half a loaf and sometimes even less than half of a loaf. And uh, a lot of left liberals, both in the media, like yourself, uh, people writing in blogs, people at you know Daily Coast and Fire Dog Lake, and in activism space and at think tanks, uh, intellectuals were writing and organizing, saying maybe we should be pushing harder on these things and thinking through how to do it because the there are real consequences to not doing this right, as we saw in a lot of these spaces. And and this is all sort of come, flooding back uh, to me now, but there were huge debates about. The public option. There were you were an emo prog uh, or a firebagger at one point. Or I'm not saying you, but one could be. Um, mm-hmm. There were debates about both, and we should be clear about this. There were de- there were sort of like tactical and strategic debates, but there was policy debates here that were were quite vigorous and out in the open. And this is in the context of the Democrats controlling the presidency the House and the Senate. I think they had a veto-proof majority in the, in the Senate for a, lim, a more limited time than people remember. But nevertheless, total control. The debates were not about necessarily even how to do things or you know what we will do if, when. It was like what was going on in that moment. Exactly. And there was a lot of things that weren't even, I mean, a lot of people always push the 60 vote thing in the Senate, but there's a lot of things about uh, things with the bailout funding, with foreclosure mitigation, with just investigating Wall Street, which was not uh, a congressional issue in the in the sense that, that we're talking about needing 60 votes in the Senate. Um, things like putting the public option through the reconciliation bill, which claimed that now we're going very deep into, into some 2009 drama, uh, 2010 drama at that point. Um, but, you know, there was always that kind of dual debate. In, and I think it was really important in retrospect because it really did demarcate what people were thinking. I mean, you talked to a lot of the Obama people at the time and they were saying, well, we will all gradually go to the exchanges. So the exchanges will have to clean themselves up and we'll have to. And there will be political push because so many people will be on the exchanges. Well, it seems like the Medicaid expansion where it went a lot better uh, especially the way people predict it. And the exchanges are not actually as flush. In some places, they're barely there. And that should really inform our thinking going forward. And I think it was a really important and interesting time where I think a lot of people who will hopefully be the next generation of leaders, people like Elizabeth Warren, who was a big TARP critic and a big critic of the bailouts, and a lot of writers and activists really kind of cut their teeth on that coming out of the Bush years. And I think it was just important in and of itself and important for developing a generation of leaders and important for really clarifying what we fight for, especially coming out of opposing Bush, which was the big thing in the mid-aughts. Right. And, you know, as you say this, like I say, it's all coming sort of like uh, washing back over me. But uh, there were I, I, I certainly felt coming out of those Bush years that I started to realize like, oh, uh, some of these people are not necessarily on the on the same side as me about a bunch of issues. I mean, at one point or for an extended period of time, uh, Obama and many sort of like, I don't know, I guess you would call them liberal lions of the media were full on advocating cuts to Medicare and to Social Security, Medicare by raising the 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 age of eligibility, uh, Social Security by cost of living uh, d- decreases. And 
you know, to contemplate that now, uh, just that's heresy in today's Democratic Party. And, and I think part of the reason is because we had those battles at that time. I would also add Occupy Wall Street and everything that came out of income inequality was in some ways pushing back on that stuff. Right. I, mean, it's, I went back and reread a lot of stuff that was coming out of like your uh, Fire Dog Lakes and The Nation, and there was a very big sense. And then it still shows up nowadays, but at the time, in late 2010, early 2011, which is what kind of sets into Occupy in that wave, a real sense of missed opportunity. Uh, the word disappointment comes up a lot in President Obama's first two years. Now, because of our current president, I think there's a lot of nostalgia for having a very competent and impressive president. But at the right. time, coming out, it was very. There was a huge sense like we blew it and we missed a lot of stuff. Well, and I think you know, I think even that that nostalgia gets at one of the the sort of the contrast between that era. And this era now, one in terms of what was happening on the broad, you know, center to the left and one that's happening from the center to the right now, because you you contrast uh, Obama's administration with with Trump's by by talking about Obama, the person he was in much. He was a very uh, impressive human being. And we can't say the same thing about the, the, the president now. And in some respects, that exemplifies the difference between what we're seeing in terms of of the interparty I guess you could call it debate that we're seeing now I mean so 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 tell us about what your observation is about what's happening on the right relative to that era uh, of the Obama administration you know, you, you occasionally see those debates about Obama flare up, and they're flaring up again right now uh, in foreign policy, which is just a different world than me, but uh, than what I study. Uh, but people now that Trump is appointing people who are very involved with Bush's torture regime to senior positions, you know, Obama's decision not to investigate seems a lot worse. And it came up. So I keep seeing these things, and now there's also this parallel debate. And this is the thing my, my piece focuses on: is um. We're talking a lot about conservative intellectuals and conservative writers, and you know, writing's kind of a navel-gazy thing, so everyone's writing about Kevin Williamson or the New York Times op-ed page. And I just sit back and I think, what are these people even talking about? What are conservatives who are paid to write and think and organize in the public sphere doing? Because all I see is them complaining about teenagers, like college campus kids don't respect free speech. These teenagers don't even know anything about guns, which whatever you make of those arguments, and I disagree with them on that, conservatives run the government. You would never know that reading them. You would never know that they have unified control of the government. They have a an agenda that is very amicable to going through reconciliation, so they only need 50 votes in the Senate. And they came in with this idea that they are very smart and they have good policy ideas and they can reform health care and change uh, the nature of the social safety net in a way that's pro-growth and pro-conservative values. And they've largely that all up and they've done nothing with that. And the only thing that they've really accomplished is deregulation and cutting taxes for rich people, which is stuff we knew that they could do anyway. So. I see no self-reflection or no debate in their space. And I really wonder what the consequences are of that. All right. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, let's talk about what the consequences of that could be. And also, you know, why, why is that the case? I mean, it is sort of shocking. I remember when Donald Trump was president-elect reading all sorts of stories about how Paul Ryan had been sitting out there and they had all the plans to go and they had done all the thinking about this 
And um, yes, they they cut taxes, but uh, I, I feel like my my twelve year old daughter could have told you that would have been the least unimaginative thing for them to do. When we come back, we'll talk more about what has happened to the supposed uh, thinkers on the right. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar, and we'll be back with a new show next week. We're back. I'm Sam Cedar. Right now, I'm talking with Mike Consell about his piece in Medium. Why are there no good conservative critiques of Trump's unified government? So, Mike, when we broke, we were talking about what was happening on the broad left in the Democratic Party in the uh, the year 2009 and 2010, when Barack Obama, when the Democrats had uh, more or less unified control of the government, uh, when Barack Obama was starting his policies, and there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of debate about what policies should work. There was a lot of debate as to whether or not Obama had, uh, the administration had done the right moves. There was a lot of debate about, about a whole host of things. And you've written a piece talking about the sort of marked lack of that on the right right now. I mean, we have never, never Trumpers, as you say, but from a policy standpoint, is it, is it that there there's total agreement or is it that there, nobody seems to care? So, you know, I, I was wondering if I was missing a point here, but I've had a lot of conservatives write me and say that I was on the right point here. And the quick, the quick scratch test for your audience is think of how many conservatives just complain about teenagers instead of really debate you watching Fox news on uh, a comment, Chris Hayes and others point out watching Fox news, you would never know that Republicans control the entire federal government and they control it in a pretty disciplined way. And they have plans that they want to do because all they do is complain about how they're powerless and no one listens to them and the teenagers don't respect them. And you would never know that there was real conservative governance going on. Um, among a lot of conservative writers, there's this never Trump uh, impulse, which talks a lot about what uh, kind of a mess Donald Trump and is. And that's a totally fair and accurate point. But that cuts both ways, because the fact that he is just obsessed with fighting about Twitter means that the congressional Republicans could pass whatever they want. Um, and so things like health care repeal, which, you know, they spent eight years talking about how they had a better plan for health care. The fact that it imploded the way it did and the fact that no one's talking about or doing retrospectives or saying what could we have learned or what could we have done different, either in a journalistic kind of way or in a more policy think tank wonky kind of way, uh, the fact that you have none of that conversation uh, is very telling. I, I think uh, – and. At this point, I wonder if it's really showing that something's broken in the conservative movement outside of just serving the interests of rich people. Yeah, I mean, and and uh, is there something broken in the conservative movement or is this basically just what happens when uh, the emperor shows up and people are asking where the clothes? I mean, uh, you know, is this is this something new in the conservative movement or are they incapable when they're governing, I mean, you know, uh, people have been writing about why um, how, how ridiculous it is that like the the New York Times, uh, 
uh, for instance, um, uh, you know, puts David Brooks on the the op- the opinion page as if he's expressing, you know, the conservative viewpoint. But I mean, I think you're making the point here that the conservative viewpoint is there is none except for cultural grievance um, when they're when, because the, now is the time where we should be seeing them implement policies or complain that policies aren't implemented. And there seems to be none of it. Yeah, there's no, with the exception of a few Ross Duffout columns, I, I see virtually nothing really trying to examine why did their health care bill fail? I mean, this was the central debate of the last eight years, and it'll be a very central debate going forward. You know, they came in saying that I, I bought the hype that they were going to pass something in January. In fact, deep political nerds might know that um, there was debate about Congress uh, showing up early. Uh, in January of 2017 to pass a repeal bill that Donald Trump could sign on his first day. That's how central it was, and that's how much they believed that they were going to be able to accomplish something. And I think there's a couple things. One, and I think this is likely what's going to happen, is that they're going to blame Donald Trump for the fact that their policies are unworkable, unpopular, cruel, uh, and not well thought out. Um, it's actually kind of a blessing for them when, you know, instead of saying, oh, we tried to take away health care from tens of millions of vulnerable people, which is a kind of evil thing to do and also just a very unpopular and not, you know, able to, to be done very easily kind of way. They'll say, oh, well, Donald Trump was a mess. Look at how much oxygen he took up. Look at what a messy tweeter is and he's picking up all these fights. When in, when in reality, he would have signed anything that got to his desk, which is kind of what the congressional Republicans really wanted uh, all along. Um, another thing is I think they just don't, maybe they don't care about specifics. Uh, the things that they really cared, uh, this, when, when they really got in the nitty gritty, it's like, how do we exempt corporations from taxes in a much more holistic way? I do a lot of work on financial reform and the bank dereg bill that just passed the Senate with the help of, unfortunately, a lot of moderate Democrats. That was really detailed policy, but it was clearly written by lobbyists. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that even in a mean way. It's like obviously uh, written by lobbyists and not by like their brilliant policy wonks. So I feel in some sense that the party is really a collection of rich interests, corporate interests, and cultural grievances. And in that, if those are the things that really move policy and really move the right Liberals are wasting their time reading a lot of these conservative pundit intellectuals because they just they're talking in a vacuum. All right. So, I mean, and and so is this I mean, should we be grateful, Mike? I mean, or um, should we be lamenting the fact that for the right, all there is is um, paying off some of their patrons and then complaining about. You know, uh, black athletes and uh, high school students. And, I mean, it, 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 I, I, I feel like you could take away everyone's computer on the right and they wouldn't know the difference if these high school students from Parkland didn't exist. They, they, it, it seems to be their only the only thing that America is dealing with is these high school students who are upset about the fact that they're victims of mass shootings. Yeah, I want to make it clear. I am not one of those people who's like, I wish the conservatives would get their game together so we could have a real debate because the conservative agenda is awful and gross and mean and hurts people and benefits people who don't need it. So, like, I'm super glad they're disorganized. And in one sense, one reason I wrote this since on Medium is I really wanted to twist the knife and just be like, you guys have an agenda that is awful and you couldn't even do it. 
Uh, and why why were you such failures? And the fact that you can't even find anything interesting to say about your failures. Um, you know, when the public option failed to pass, people were talking about that in 2010. They still talk about it now. Yes. Um, will, will people talk about the failure of skinny repeal to pass in the same way we talked about the public option? You know, uh, Joe Lieberman, even very moderate Dems will not talk about Joe Lieberman because he killed a Medicare buy-in. Do conservatives hate John McCain because he killed skinny repeal? I don't even think they care. I don't even think they think about it that way. And I think that's very important. And, and, and the, the, the other part of it is that there's a lot of tendency to cover this is a war of ideas. And there's a like the New York Times will run all these profiles about the brand, you know, all the brilliant young thinkers on the right. And this comes up all the time. And I think it's worthwhile to really hold them to account and say, okay, if these guys are so brilliant, Make them be brilliant about what's going on right now. And if they fundamentally can't because they don't care or they, if they just, the infrastructure isn't built to do anything other than grievance uh, waving, then we should really think that, you know, this is the party of capital and deregulation and grievance. And we should understand that we are engaging with that kind of with action. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Mike. I mean, we see profiles recently of of uh, of Ben Shapiro, the philosopher king of the right. And um, all he's talking about is how uh, he thinks that these high school students lack performative skills. All right, well, yeah, uh, Mike... If that I was to take one minute away from attacking trans people to just say, like, do you guys have any ideas about how to fix health care? That would be a real interesting thing. But there's a reason they won't, because they can't. Mike Consul, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Mike Konzel is a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. He blogs at Rorty Bomb and New Deal 2.0. When we come back, Heather Digby Parton will join us to analyze more news from the past week. That's just ahead. I'm Sam Cedar. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio. Don't forget, rofpodcast.com to support the show. <laughs> 